This is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. Jeff Bezos is my daddy, and the best way to support my daddy is by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash oncomedywriting, and click the supporter artist button, shop on Amazon like Nurlywood, and I get a little kickback. Please feed the daddy. This week's episode of On Comedy Writing is brought to you by Malia Obama. On Comedy Writing, On Comedy Writing. Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast about the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson. Uh, like I've said on a previous episode and on social media, I uh, I spilled Diet Dr. Pepper on my laptop, and in doing so, I didn't say this yet, I lost a couple of episodes of this very podcast. Uh, the good news is, I've made up two of them. I literally re-recorded two episodes, so the next two weeks of this podcast will be known as the Diet Dr. Pepper Files. These are uh, episodes I recorded in January originally, but re-recorded uh, just in late March, so I guess last week when you hear this one. And uh, two weeks earlier when you hear the next one. I didn't have to do that math. Um, because the files have been destroyed by the sweet nectar that is Diet Dr. Pepper. So, uh, while I'm always grateful for my guests that come on the show, I'm especially grateful for today's and next week's guests. Uh, and who is the guest this week? Well, it's Eric Moneypenny. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know why every podcast introduces a guest as if people don't know from the title of the episode. Uh, but it's industry standard, baby, and uh, I'm nothing if not industry standard. But Eric, uh, Eric's such a smart guy. He's done so much comedy stuff from being a part of The Midnight Show, a legendary sketch group in L.A. that you've probably heard of, to writing for The Eric Andre Show and AOK, to teaching sketch at the Pack Theater. Uh, I took Eric's class within like two or three months, I think, of me living in L.A., uh, and it's the best decision, the best decision I made uh, in the year I lived there. I don't think we talked about it much in this episode, but... Uh, Eric wrote a really incredible sketch notes packet uh, that he hands out on the first day that I think is worth the like the price of admission alone, let alone like the eight week class. Uh, I still sometimes pop it out when I'm uh, struggling with a sketch. Definitely uh, the best sketch class I've taken. But beyond the actual class, uh, I met so many cool people at the pack that I miss out here in New York. I haven't found that kind of community here. Uh, the pack has a really wonderful community, and I think a big reason. Uh, is that the people in charge, like Eric, are just really smart, talented, and good people, which is a rare combination anywhere, let alone Los Angeles, the city of uh, we are going to get taken advantage of. But uh, the Pack Theater is great. I, I suggest you take classes there. Uh, Eric's class, like I said, best sketch class ever taken. Uh, and if anyone from the Pack is listening, my Venmo is Allen-Johnson-10. You can put the $200 for the ad in there. Just kidding, not an ad, not paid. Uh, but Eric's great, really nice guy, really smart guy. This is a longer episode, but it's kind of one of the, it's kind of a good one because he kind of just uh, takes it in different ways. We didn't get to talk about any of the credits, which is kind of cool. I like that. So here is Eric Moneypenny. Uh, Eric, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, where are you from originally? <laughs> <laughs> I'm from, uh, I was born in Ohio um, and then moved to North Carolina when I was uh, three. Mm-hmm. But then went back to, I lived in Ohio for a year in seventh grade and uh, went to college there uh, as well. 
But so I unfortunately have to cheer for uh, Cleveland sports teams. Well, I guess it's not that unfortunate now. We got Odell Beckham. Um, oh yeah, but the Cavs aren't looking great. That's changed in the last two months. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Uh, did they get Earl? Oh, that was like a rumor. They're they're going to get Earl Thomas as well. Oh yeah, yeah. I texted my dad. I was like, because uh, I saw some Twitter. Uh, it was like, oh. Brown's expected to sign Earl Thomas, right. and uh, so I texted my dad right after we got off the phone talking about how awesome the Browns were, and like, I was like, it's 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 a done deal, or Tom- <laughs> Earl Thomas is replacing Jabril Peppers, and dad's like texting back, like, Dorsey does it again, and I'm like, <laughs> I wake up the next morning, he signed with the Ravens, and I'm like, well, that's a... Oh, he signed with the Ravens? Oh, that's right. He yeah, did. it's like worst case scenario. Right. I think that was like some guy who was verified just tweeted that just to fuck with people. Like he's not even like a, a journalist, I don't think. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> yeah, that was. Uh, but but also, I, I subscribed to some, uh, which is so stupid. I subscribed to like a Browns insiders thing, oh, yeah. and they were like, "No, no, it's it's legit." He's thinking. Like, <laughs> I'm like, oh. uh, well, "Welcome back to Sports Talk." With, <laughs> Sports Talk 890 with uh, <laughs> Al and Big E. <laughs> Talking Cleveland sports. <laughs> Talking <laughs> Cleveland sports. Yeah, and I didn't know that Earl Thomas had signed with somebody. Still <laughs> thought he might go to the Cowboys. Yeah. Uh, did you like growing up uh, in Ohio and North Carolina? Yeah, it was cool. Um, I, I always was uh, like a little bit... I was a little bit different growing up in North Carolina. Like I was... I wasn't like... A complete outsider or anything like that but everybody in North Carolina kind of talks like this and mm-hmm. uh some of them are uh very very sort of um well conservatives one way to put it but like just uh I don't know it's just different there yeah, yeah. um whereas <laughs> I've always been more like like I don't have an accent and I never had an accent and, and stuff like that so I was a Yankee, which is what they called uh, people from the north, because they're they're still pretty upset about the uh, Civil War, I guess. Right. Yeah. Uh, when, when did you <laughs> last time we did the? Did you do like an intro that was like? I'll do an intro. That I'll okay. Later. Yeah, yeah. Like last time we did this, it was like we got into. Uh, Talking about Woody Allen and Bill yeah. Cosby and all this stuff, and I'm like, I don't even know if I should be talking about this because <laughs> I like I teach and I didn't, I wasn't pro. No, no, no. I wasn't pro Bill Cosby or pro Woody Allen, but uh, yeah, here we are talking about the uh, Civil War, which is another. <laughs> and by the way, I'm not pro Confederacy or anything like that. Uh, no, no, Union all the way. I'm pro uh, Civil War history. I mean, it's good to learn the history, <laughs> learn. but like, we don't want to be like those guys who are like, "Oh, we like the history so much." Let's. Uh, oh right, no, oh yeah, <laughs> I, I, that's not what I meant. No, <laughs> we uh, like the history so much, we want to like fly flags everywhere right. or, or any of that stuff. That is insane. That well, let's not talk about the anymore. But that is insane. <laughs> that's the justification of doing that. Is that you're just into history? That's crazy. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, when did you first get interested in comedy? <laughs> um, I, I was interested in comedy at a uh, very early age. Um, I remembered, uh, like, I mean, when you're a kid, you like to laugh, and, like, you watch, like, Tom and Jerry, and, like, that's what I would watch, and, like, Looney Tunes and stuff like that, and, like, just cartoons kids like, and then I started watching... The 80s were great for... I was born in 1980, and the 80s were great for sitcoms. <laughs> there was, uh, like, Cheers and... 
the Cosby show and uh, <laughs> like stuff like that. And like even something like uh, Growing Pains was, I, I think Growing Pains is still funny because they would do some like weird fourth wall breaking stuff every now and then, which is like what you don't think of when it's this show with like Alan Thicke and Kirk Cameron. But uh, right. but yeah, that, that was pretty fun. And then I remember, um, I think it was third grade, uh, Nick at Night, Started show is Nick at Night even around anymore? Uh, I think I think it is. Last I checked. Okay. Yeah. Like. Oh yeah. Now Nick and like when I was a kid in like the eighties, like Nick at Night showed like like shows from the fifties, like Dobie Gillis and, and like stuff like uh-huh. that. And like I, I think the last time I saw Nick at Night, they were showing like Friends. <laughs> <laughs> like oh, like that's the oldie now. But uh, yeah, uh, Nick at Night started showing. Um, these, I guess they were cut together in the early 80s and, and put into syndication, but there were these half-hour versions of 70s SNL. Uh, oh. And it was called, like, it was it was like, it's the best of Saturday night. Like, uh, even in that weird period where it wasn't Saturday night live yet, it was like they called oh, it Saturday right. night. But, like, uh, they'd show, like, the best of Saturday night. And you, you, you finally got to see, like... Um, all these people who were super famous uh, from the movies, like like you knew Chevy Chase and Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and Gilda Radner and stuff like that because they'd been movies. But then uh, getting to see them, what they actually did, like I I thought that was really cool, even though I didn't get some of the seventies references or anything like that. But I mean, things like the Coneheads and and whatever still still translate to to modern day and. Uh, I just thought it was really cool and that like uh seeing Chevy Chase like do Gerald Ford and stuff like that like I would like be going around like the classroom like just falling down to be funny (laughs) and like I I'm kind of deadpan uh kind of always been I think my teachers like they're like Eric what are you doing (laughs) this kid's just like falling like do we need to send him to like a special teacher or something like that uh, yeah, for like <laughs> people who can't stand up straight um, uh, and fall down all over the place. But uh, I, I thought that was really cool. And, and also right around the same time, they, they did like an hour long block of um, it was, it was best of Saturday night and uh, followed by SCTV uh, reruns. And it was, the SCTV ones that were also in syndication, which were kind of the the NBC episodes were like 90 minutes long, but the old Canadian ones were syndicated and those were cut down to 30 minutes. And that was just awesome seeing like John Candy and Joe Flaherty and Rick Moranis and uh, Martin Short and Catherine O'Hara and Andrea Martin and, and, and all these people. And I was thought it was like, like not to be like a comedy nerd when I was like eight, but I'm like, this is kind of cooler in a way than Saturday Night Live. Like Saturday Night Live being live and stuff like that was really cool. But like it it was just a little bit different of a sense of humor and a little bit weirder and and stuff like that. And I remember having a friend over for the slumber party and we borrowed my dad's tape recorder and we're doing like shitty reenactments of that. uh, (laughs) Have you ever seen the 3d shit they would do with uh, John Candy and, uh, Eugene Levy were like these playing these guys that was like master horror theater or something like that. Oh, it was like, yeah. 
Oh, and that's they'd, right, like, yeah, put, yeah. Like, they'd like put stuff towards the camera like it right. was 3D. Uh, just doing stuff like that. And uh, Oh, I, I forgot another thing about SNL. Is, like, my, my dad had a lot of records, and I don't know if he belonged to like Columbia House or like something like that, but he had like a ton of fucking records. And he had one record that was just like Saturday Night Live. And it was just like, it was like sketches and, and stuff just on an album from the show. So like it, you didn't see it, but you're just listening to what was on the show, which was also pretty cool. And like, like seeing the photos, I was kind of always just fascinated with that sort of stuff. And then uh, wound up uh, ruining my life and becoming a comedy writer and, and teacher and stuff like that. The... Um... This, I feel like the sketch record thing that used to be more of a of a thing. Because I remember I was at a vinyl store a couple weeks ago and I saw like the Smother Brothers. Yeah, and it was like like forty dollars. So I didn't buy it, but it's just, it, like I don't know why that's selling for forty dollars. But yeah, I mean there used to be. I mean there's a lot of lot of audio comedy now, but it's like mostly like narrative. Yeah, or like people like us just talking right, about stuff right. where. Um, and I've been really funny so far, by the way. I'm just kidding. I'm super dry. But, um, yeah, like, there were so many. I like when they used to call them, like, party albums, where it's like, oh, you just put this on at a party. And we'll listen to, like, Cheech and Chong pretend they're high <laughs> or, or, or whatever. Um, but, yeah, the, the 60s and 70s had some cool comedy albums and, and audio comedy, like National Lampoon Radio Hour. That was another thing I listened to. Because I got a box set when I was, uh, I think, a freshman in college. I was at that point where I didn't really want anything for Christmas anymore. But um, that was one thing I saw online. And I was like, oh, I really want this. And my parents got it for me. And I I wore that shit out and uh, fucking would listen to it. Even even when, like, the Midnight Show was li- living together, I would just, like, put those on and be like, this is, like this is cool because this is like Bill Murray and John Belushi and, and all them before they were famous uh, making like probably 50 bucks a week, which you could live in New York off that in like the 70s. But like, uh, I, I always thought that was really cool. And you, you guys at the Midnight Show, you guys did like an audio uh, album thing, didn't you? Yeah, but it's, uh, I mean, people can check it out or whatever. It's, it was uh, a super rush job. Uh, just because um, it's very influenced by, like, it feels like National Lampoon Radio Hour, and that was kind of, like, the intention, like, was to make it feel like the albums we listened to growing up, like uh, Adam Sandler albums or, or National Lampoon Radio Hour type stuff. But um, it, it was it was my big regret because I kind of, it was, it was kind of my project that uh, Heather Campbell helped uh, fund who was in the show because like she was just off of SNL and, and and writing for a show and she was like well this means a lot to money penny so like I'll I'll, I'll pay for like some equipment and some uh, foam some sound foam and like whatever <laughs> and we just uh, the reason we did it was because we were going on tour with uh, and for those of you who don't know what the midnight show is, it's a uh, we I did like a live sketch show with a bunch of people that was kind of like an SNL sort of thing, but like dirtier and a little more aggressive. Uh, we did it once a month at UCB and sold out like every show for 10 years, and 
we stopped at the 10 year anniversary because we all just got too busy to do it. But uh, we were going on tour with Drew Carey in like 2012. And I don't know if it was him, but like somebody, somebody brought up like, oh, you should sell merch. And we're like, well, we don't have any merch. So like a month before the tour started, I was like, let's make an album. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, it was like super stressful. And there were like so many things that could have, gone wrong like because uh, it's it, and another thing is like I wish we wouldn't have made so many uh, physical copies because um, I still have like 40 <laughs> in my place like I think we printed like 300 or 500 physical copies and we sold them but there's still like 40 left just sitting at my place and uh, we uh, recorded it with Stephen Perlstein Pearlstein, who you know, mm-hmm. um, and he helped out a lot with it because it was like one of those things where I'm just like, hey, does anybody know how to like record stuff? <laughs> and uh, Steven like worked his ass off and and for something that like, I don't need, it barely made a pro like we paid him and, and stuff like that uh, a little bit and 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 it was just like don't try to record a fucking comedy album in like two weeks because we had to like get it we had to get it out and 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 so we could get the physical copies back so we could take these boxes on tour and that's like another pain in the ass we didn't think about was like oh we gotta carry all these fucking heavy boxes like of stuff and our costumes through the airport and uh yeah but uh so I'm not doing a very good job plugging it, but uh, <laughs> there's 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 some funny stuff on there. It's just we we super duper rushed it, yeah, good. and we we didn't we we had a big because we'd been doing the show four years by that point, so we had a big back catalog of sketches, uh, but we. And we picked things that we thought would do well on audio, but I think the thing to do is write specifically yeah. for that genre. Did you, like, did you uh, just, so you didn't, like, record it with, like, an audience at all either, right? No. It wasn't, like, a live recording. We, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the producer at the show at the time, Mike Bush and uh, James Pumphrey, who was in the show at the time, they lived at this house, this giant, uh, like, Hollywood party mansion with uh, the power violence guys and Brooks Whelan lived there uh, before he was on SNL and and we just recorded at that house and it kind of felt cool because it was like oh it's like recording a house and like a giant Hollywood house it's like oh it's like how uh, fucking whatever band just set up all the recording equipment (laughs) some strange like house up in the hills and uh, we did that but uh, yeah we, we really rushed it I, I recently heard that Nirvana was staying at the Oakwoods when they recorded in utero, which I thought was pretty funny. The the one where all the little kids stay yeah, at? Yeah, yeah. And they're just like Nirvana walking by the pool. <laughs> that's where, uh, isn't that where, that's where one of the uh, Michael Jackson kids lived. <laughs> uh, and also, I think that's where Corey Haim died. I think. He died at the Oakwoods? I think so. Oh my god. Uh, there used to be a Taco Bell right across the street from Warner Brothers in the Oakwood Apartments, and uh, it just had all these eight by tens of child stars on the <laughs> wall because they would they would walk down the hill from the Oakwoods yeah. and frequent that Taco Bell. 
That, that's so funny to think there's like a wall of fame of just child stars. At the yeah. Bell. That's great. Um, what brought you to L.A. in the first place? Um, I did a lot of comedy in college, and uh, I went to Ohio University. And part of the reasons why I went there is because, like, you could do, like, a lot of comedy. They had a uh, – it wasn't like Emerson where you could, like, major in comedy. But I didn't know about Emerson growing up in North Carolina. And, like, I didn't even have the internet. Uh, I didn't have the internet, really, until I went to college. But um, I, I knew they did a lot of comedy. I had a relative that went there, uh, my aunt, and uh, – they were also the first uh, university in, in, I think, America to to have comedy classes like that started in like the 50s or something with Dr. Mel Helitzer, who uh, wrote one of the more famous books about comedy writing, which is Comedy Writing Secrets, which is like tips and also kind of like a workbook. But um, and I, I studied under him and I did some stand up and I did some improv and I did some sketch and uh they had a TV show there that was like an SNL that the school ran where every night, Friday night at 7 PM and would go on like local TV, like sort of like the, the PBS public television sort of thing, more so than public access. Uh, every Friday night at 7 PM, we would do this live show from a studio. Uh, it's called Friday's live, which is a a great, really creative title. (laughs) Um, and we never understood why it was like Friday's live. Because there was that sketch show Fridays, uh, which I had only seen recently. I hadn't seen that yet because it just got on Hulu a couple years ago. Oh, uh, okay. Or and now it's on, uh, for any of you sketchheads out there, I think it's on uh, Shout Factory's app on Apple TV, but it's free. Uh, oh. Um, and yeah, we would do like like bits and, and desk segments and, and pre-tapes and, and stuff like that and impressions and characters and I was made like head writer my freshman year which was really cool but uh, I was also like I just I didn't really experience college because I was just doing so much comedy um, like I would I would go take a class at like the Cleveland Improv and the booker there was like Dave Schwenson or no, he wasn't the booker there, but he he taught the comedy classes out of there because he used to be the booker at the Improv out here on Melrose um, in the '80s, or or worked under Bud Friedman, and uh, he saw me and I was like 19, and he's like, "Oh, this kid does like impressions and characters, and like his stand-up's okay." Uh, so he'd like book me on these like gigs and like. Uh, like Northern Ohio and Michigan and stuff like that. So I'd be driving sometimes out on the weekends to like Michigan to do standups for grownups who hated me. <laughs> and uh, like I bombed so hard in Saginaw, Michigan. Like I bet people still remember it um, <laughs> if they were there. Uh, and I wrecked my car on the way home because I wasn't used to driving like a blizzard, right? which was like, that was a bad weekend. And then, uh, but I, I I do just like a ton of comedy stuff, and I just knew that like because by that that point, uh, by two thousand and two or whatever, um, I knew that like a uh, a lot of people were coming out of L.A. Obviously, and that's like sort of where to go. And New York's always kind of I don't know. You live there now. Yeah. Do you like it? Uh, it's all right. <laughs> yeah, I like I. I've only been there for very short bursts, 
and I just feel like overwhelmed by it. Oh yeah, um, I can see that easily. Yeah, like you go to NYU. That that was like one of the schools I applied to, but I was just like, I don't, I don't know if I could. I don't know if I could handle it, and I don't think like I think I would have got discouraged with comedy a lot sooner if I was starting out in a big city like that, as opposed to just kind of in like a college town where we had kind of our own little scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so moved out to LA with some, some friends that I did comedy with. Uh, there is a sketch group for funny guys and Matt, uh, that was like Anthony Deptool and Michael Bush and Alan Kellogg and Jimmy Sherman. And and most of them moved out here too. I moved out here with, uh, and I would open for them when they would do shows. And they did some cool stuff, like they opened for. Uh, what's that guy's name? It's like a pretty big. Oh, uh, they opened. They did a paid gig one time at a college, like opening for Greg Fitzsimmons in Ohio. <laughs> okay. And like I opened for them, so I was like kind of along for the ride. And uh, yeah, we just kind of moved out here and started doing sketch at, at IO because. Uh, UCB wasn't around yet, and um, IO would just let you do a show if you were like, "Oh, I think I can get forty people to come." Uh, that's why I always get dis- like, I always get bummed with uh, people who can't get crowds to your shows because I'm like, if me and my dumb friends <laughs> could always get at least forty people to come to our comedy shows at a theater where you cannot park <laughs> right. because it's in the worst part of Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. uh, then you have no excuse to to not get people to your shows. I was and with social media, like we didn't even have right. that in like 2002. We were like emailing our friends and passing out flyers on the street and and stuff like that. And then and we would also just do shows. That was another cool thing about uh, about comedy in uh, L.A. in the the early 2000s and before was um, it was a lot less centralized. So you got to know and like, you got to know and be around a, a wider group of people than than what happens when because now people just go to UCB or they just go to the pack or they kind of dip their toes in both, um, and, and that's fine. It's it's good to take advantage of comedy schools for the infrastructure that they provide for like, oh, here's a place where you can do shows without without owing money if 40 <laughs> right. people don't come which was the deal at io at least back then um but we would do shows at like mexican restaurants and we would run into like we'd see a guy doing impressions doing this like italian chef guy who's amazing impressions he's like our age and we're like oh you're cool and he's like oh i liked your sketch too and then it's like oh who are you and it's like oh i'm bill Hader. and like <laughs> like like meeting like people like that and like i remember being around uh I, I saw Paul Rust and Neil Campbell doing sketches with their college troupe in front of. I mean, there was a there was a show. They did like a show in the basement of the uh, the Ramada Inn, which is now like the Hollywood Hotel. They did a sketch show, and it was like they were they were new in town, so they didn't really know anybody other than the people who they they performed with. So like, there wasn't that many people there, but the people there like were like. BJ Novak and like <laughs> stuff like that. And um, yeah, it, it was just, I think it was a lot cooler before it got too centralized because you got to meet more people and you kind of wound up in different scenes. Like there was like the, there was like the main alternative scene with like, uh, that was kind of centralized around like 
the old Largo and Scott Ackerman and BJ Porter's show at uh, at uh, M Bar, uh, which was called Comedy Death Ray, which then went to UCB and then became a podcast called Comedy Bang Bang, and like now is like the biggest comedy podcast in the world. Sorry, Alan, or, or whatever. <laughs> but uh, there was like that scene. Uh, with like Zach Galifianakis and Sarah Silverman and David Cross and, and Bob Odenkirk. And it was cool like getting to do some shows with them. Uh, but there was also kind of like the JV alternative scene or like the freshman alternative scene, which was like the people that we sort of ran with, like my sketch group. And I did a little bit of stand up and there was like Anthony Jeselnik and Natasha Legero and Jonah Ray and uh, people like that and they would they would do those bigger shows too as would we um, but I always just thought that was I always thought that was cool like I wish that could come back a little bit because now it's just like now it's mostly like people if if you're not a stand up you kind of go take classes and uh, hope to get in that way yeah it seems like it's very theater based and then it is a very big uh, delineation between like stand ups and improv people yeah. and sketch yeah. And what like UCB what UCB did when they opened up out here is like they would just like Walsh like Besser would be around doing stand up and, and characters and stuff on shows and then Walsh moved out here and started doing stuff. That's how we got a show at UCB at the very beginning with my first sketch group was he just saw us doing a sketch at a Mexican restaurant and it was uh like the ending was terrible, but it got a huge laugh. Like, and I say that because I came up with the ending. It was just like the stupid sketch where uh, the, the old Olympic swimmer Mark Spitz. Uh, it was his like birthday or something. It was a presentational yeah. sketch. It wasn't like a behind the fourth wall sketch. It was just like we're kind of doing characters. Like we're all out there in swimsuits, and we had a th- this guy Mike Bush is kind of a, a bigger gentleman, and he's very hairy and. It, we put a mustache on him so he looked like a Mr. Pringles version of uh, Mark Spitz. And we were celebrating his birthday and like we, that was, I didn't even realize until my early 20s that we could get anything we wanted written on a cake at like the grocery store. Right. I always thought I was just like, oh, it has to be like happy birthday, Eric, or congratulations, <laughs> Susan, or like whatever. And it's like, oh, they'll write happy birthday, Mark Spitz. <laughs> so we'd bring out like a birthday cake and like uh, sing happy birthday. Like it doesn't make any sense. We'd sing happy birthday. And then uh, we fucking threw the cake in his face. <laughs> and uh, like we had like plants that were wearing fucking ski masks. I don't know if you could do this now, but we had plants and ski masks that ran in with fucking guns. And... Uh, <laughs> Mark Spitz was like, what's going on? And I go, we are turning on you for no reason. (laughs) That that would get like a big crowd pop. But it's like, it's also just like, you're not supposed to do shit like that. They were like laughing how bad it was. But like uh, Matt Walsh saw us do that sketch uh, at like a Mexican restaurant where there was like a show. And he's like, oh, hey, uh. We have, an, we have a theater opening out here in a couple months. Do you guys want a show? And we're like, <laughs> sure. <laughs> That's how like easy it was to get a show back then. Uh, and we also did that sketch at... Uh, we also did that sketch at Comedy Death Ray, which was Scott Ackerman and BJ Porter's show. And it was like right before... like We went on right before Louis C.K. in front of uh, all these uh, 
alternative comedy nerds and like bombed real bad to the point where it was just like let's let's fucking get out of here because that was another show it was like an m bar which was just like a a bar slash restaurant we're walking around in fucking like bikinis and and stuff like it was it was weird back then. Oh, so you bombed with the Mark Spitz? Uh... Oh, yeah. We bombed with that thing. We're like, they're like, oh, can you come do that? Our show, it's fucking awesome. And uh, we went and fucking bombed and ate shit. We always bombed and ate shit. Like, they had us back. And BJ Porter actually directed my first sketch team, the Winchester Preparatory Sketch Academy, which is an awful name, <laughs> uh, to the point where we just went by WPSA. Uh, but we had, like, a prep because we were all young and we wore like these like tweed suits and acted like we were these because we're we were all poor kids but we acted like we were these like Harvard yeah, yeah, kids yeah. who had been studying sketch comedy our whole life <laughs> and like we were like sketch is fucking stupid everything's been done so we're gonna like change sketch comedy we played like these pro wrestling heel sort of characters <laughs> which I think made a lot of people just think we were actually dicks because like we would like live out the gimmick like pro wrestlers right. and we're like just like normal people but we'd like try to like start fights with audience members and like like shut the fuck up and like get in their face and like stuff like that we'd uh, and they'd be like I think those guys are like dicks and we're like we'd be like no we're not dicks we have like friends and stuff and uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're just just trying to do anything to get attention, but I think the the sort of uh, Lonely Island approach was probably more successful <laughs> of like, oh, we're just cool guys and we're nice to people. Uh, that's probably the more successful approach than uh, we fucking hate the audience and <laughs> we hate each other. That was like another thing was like we would just like we just shit on each other. It was like, it was like watching insult comedy, but like (laughs) directed inward as well, where like, we would just like stage these like fake arguments. Like we'd stop a sketch to like fake argue and get meta as you like you do when you're starting out. Right. Cause it like, when you're starting out, you're like, Oh, I'm going to break all the rules. (laughs) Uh, and I still get students like that. And it's like, no, that's what everybody thinks. And then you realize, like, uh, you can't get work doing this shit. So, like, <laughs> it's better to sort of try to stay closer to the lines the, that are set out for you in the coloring book as far as the rules are and not stray too far outside that. Right. And also, it's about it's about making regular people laugh and, and less comedians because that was – Comedians and, and comedy nerds were kind of the only people that came to our show. And I don't use comedy nerd uh, in a negative way. Right. just Because we are. Um, <laughs> but yeah. It's funny. That Mark Spitz thing, I think, would still be funny to comedy nerd people today, I think. Yeah. But like I, but not to regular people. No. That's for sure. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, we learned that going on tour with, with uh, Drew Carey. Like... Drew's like, like just, he's an awesome, real nice guy in real life. And, uh, and he has a very sort of broad appeal and we were doing stuff that would like kill at UCB. Uh, and we'd take it on the road and it was like, oh, this isn't the same is when you do a show in front of people who watch comedy all the time, they're just going out to, to see, see Drew Carey do his his stand up which is great and he's very likable and stuff like that and we're up there making a mess or like whatever 
And they're like, what the fuck is this? Like the first night we were on tour was uh, San Diego. And uh, our first show was so I'm like crapping on my I'm crapping on everything I've ever done a lot today. <laughs> this is like more negative than the other one. But uh, uh, our first show was so bad. Uh we did two shows a night, Friday and Saturday, down in San Diego at this uh, club called, like, I think the American Comedy Company or, or something like that. And uh, giant showroom. And we bombed so hard after the Friday night at 8 p.m. show. The owner, like, came to, the, like, the green room. And he was a very sort of... Uh, he's very sort of hyper guy. Like, very... Very nightclub owner, hyper. Uh, you can be insinuate, insinuated uh, what leads to a, a club owner being hyper as far as the things that, that people do in bathrooms at, at clubs. Uh, that's libel. Um, <laughs> but, uh, or slander, whatever the one is. Uh, oh, Eric doesn't know the difference between libel and slander. Um, you're not going to transcribe this podcast, no, are you? No, no. Okay, so it won't be... It'll be one or the other. Yeah. <laughs> it won't be, be the one. <laughs> but he came in there and he's like, okay. Uh, and he saw our set list. And he was like, you could tell he wasn't, like, they don't have sketch groups at, like, those kinds of theaters. Unless it's, like, the kids in the hall or some shit. But, like, or whitest kids you know or, or whatever. Like, they just don't do sketch at those types of clubs. And he, uh, he saw that we had a set list. And the look on his face... When he realized that it was, he was just like, oh, okay. You guys prepared that? <laughs> <laughs> it was like, uh, oh, yeah, dude. We didn't just randomly come down with a bunch of costumes <laughs> and then just start running around, like, <clears throat> turning the lights off in, like, weird places uh, in between our scenes that we're improvising. So it's like, yeah, we planned it. It's like... Okay, yeah, well, that's not going to work. <laughs> so we had to, like, we just came up with a completely different, like, we had time because Drew was doing stand-up uh, to figure out a new set list for that night. Wow. Like, the 10, the 10 p.m. show after we bombed really hard at the 8 p.m. show. And the, the 10 p.m. show was a little bit better but still bad. <laughs> Because uh, we were like doing sketches, we didn't even have the right costumes for. It's like why, <laughs> why is this, why is this guy in an office scene wearing like a orange shirt, like just an orange t-shirt? Is he supposed to be in like jail or something? Is he a prisoner? Like, um, and then the next day we ran around in San Diego and got the costumes for the the sketches that we wanted to do and. Had a bigger, better show and, and partied with uh, Navy guys all night. <laughs> there's a lot of Navy guys right. in San Diego. That's like a cool thing with like a Navy guy. It's like, oh, that was fucking great. We're like, all right, cool, man. Um, and then that, that was like another thing. Like the first few cities, we were kind of like just like figuring it out. Whereas it's like, okay, so what are regular people like? More so than just like what works at UCB. Not that it's not that it's bad. It's just different, mm -hmm. and and that's that's something I I learned from more established comedians would pull me aside when I when I was really young and like some really big names and like kind of be like, okay, well this just know if you're gonna do this, this sort of thing works in alternative rooms, but it's not gonna work where you get like paid. 
and it's not going to work in like Iowa or or wherever. Um, so yeah, we were like sort of figuring that out. And we got to the point where like the fucking show, the tour show was like really good. And once we sort of figured out that, I think it made our UCB shows a lot better. And I think the last six years of the show that we did at UCB were way better than the ones we did in the first four. Mm-hmm. Whereas like the ones we did in the first four, we thought were like the greatest fucking achievements in the history of sketch kind or like whatever <laughs> just being younger and cocky but um yeah it's interesting because uh <laughs> you know stand-ups go on tour all the time uh but sketch shows like very i mean they, they do like festivals but they don't do like a tour so it's interesting to think that um with stand-ups you can kind of figure out what people want quicker mm-hmm. and with sketch you you know you stay in your like la bubble i guess and you write your la tv shows and stuff you may never you might yeah. never know yeah yeah i mean it's the thing for sketch to do is like like it would make sense to do it like a band where it's like oh let's just go around the country and do small shows or whatever but like no one's gonna come see you unless you have like a youtube following and uh so that sort of thing works better if you've already been on tv where like because i know whitest kids you know has like done tours and uh kids in the hall i've seen them on tour and uh stuff like that and that's that's all it's always better when the audience is coming expecting to see sketch comedy more so than like what the hell is this (laughs) (laughs) yeah this is theater yeah uh so how'd you guys uh first start the midnight show um there was a uh there was an snl showcase uh at ucb where like Lauren Michaels came and and I think Seth Meyers came and uh, Michael Bush who who I mentioned earlier who played Mark Spitz uh, in the one sketch and who uh, I moved out here with uh, he he was just at the show and he was like oh like let's take a lot of these people and just do a show like what if they were all in the same sketch group and it wasn't even like all of us. Uh, Cause I wasn't on the showcase cause like SNL had already flown me out like a couple years before that and then decided, nah, we're good. Um, <laughs> what was your SNL audition like? Oh, that was scary. We can get to that after the formation <laughs> of the midnight show. But, um, uh, yes, yeah, so it was like Heather Campbell, James Adomian, Jeff Sloniker, um, people like that. And then there were also other people like, uh, that never wound up being in the midnight show, but like, uh, how it started was like, it was kind of a bunch of people that had their own shows. Like I was in a sketch group with Mike. Adomian did a lot of stuff with, uh, Josh Fadum, who was also in the show. Um, Heather was kind of newer in town cause she came from, she was doing comedy in Amsterdam with like Jordan Peele and those people at like boom Chicago. Um, but but Mike brought her in, uh, and uh, James Pumphrey was doing a show with uh, with a gentleman who's not part of the comedy community anymore for uh, for a serious reason, and uh, like they had their own show, and like we kind of just uh, uh, all these. We like when we were like 27, we're like, oh, this is like a fucking super group. And it's like, well, it's not a super group, but it was like a pretty good 
collection of talent coming in and we were all kind of doing bits on each other's shows before. Like I, I would go down all the time and like do bits and like a, a Domian's show, uh, when he'd be do- putting up like a Vincent price show or something like that. Um, and Nick Wagner, uh, knew James and Josh from like the groundlings and cause they all came up together. Uh, so yeah, we all kind of knew each other. Hal Rudnick, uh, was doing stuff with um he was part of a, a comedy team called Hal and Gene. Uh we all started doing stuff together and it was a little bit wonky at first because there were when it started there were like twelve cast members and like fourteen writers, so there was like twenty six fucking people involved. <laughs> wow. And we'd do like uh we'd do like live bands, which was also unwieldy. <laughs> And we had some, like, pretty cool, like, like Giant Drag played the show, uh, like Annie Hardy. Uh, so we had some, like, cool bands and, like, some good celebrity guests. Uh, like, Dax Shepard was one of the early guests, and this was after, like, Idiocracy, which was one of our favorite movies at the time. Um, Fred Willard, uh, the, like, obviously, like, Matt Walsh and Ian Roberts and, and people like that. Paul F. Tompkins. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's how that started, but like probably about four months into the show, half, half the team either quit or was just told like, Hey, this isn't working out. And then the half that remained stayed until there were like only seven left (laughs) (laughs) the last, uh, at at the last, uh, of the 10 years. How were your shows like, uh, funny at the start? Were they good? Uh, we thought they were fucking great, but it's it's just like anything. Like you have a different perspective as you go. Like I I watch early midnight show. Like I had to like look at some stuff because we were putting together a cheesy sort of retrospective for our last show, and I was like looking at early stuff, and I was just like, we thought we were hot shit, but we didn't really know what we were doing yet. Uh, which I guess is probably a recurring theme. Uh, throughout this episode because um, it was like one of those things where it's just like we were we were all broke and angry and this was like during the fucking financial crisis so we thought like the world was going to shit we're like the world is broken and the show was a lot more sort of political and social commentary back then but also mixed with like stupid python inspired uh wordplay sketches or uh meta bits and uh yeah i don't i don't think the show we we always had good crowds from the beginning uh because we had good parties after the show but uh yeah like it 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 definitely got better in, in my opinion as as anything would if right. you do it long enough well, it's usually because you so you did the midnight show and you obviously at the pack you uh, you like are in charge of the sketch teams and stuff. Yeah. How long do you think it takes for like a sketch team to like really get the hang of it together and like put on like a really good show? Well, I mean, in the long game, it's like they're they're like different eras. Like if if a sketch group's around for like ten years, it's right. like oh that's like the era where we did this and that's this is the era where we sort of evolved into this and this is the era where blah blah blah. Um, or at least that's how I saw like the midnight show. I think it takes it like six months. That's why we give them 12 is, uh, cause I remember the first six months of the midnight show was kind of figuring it out 
what we were and what each other thought was funny enough to do and and whatever and we kept honing that but um it takes at least six months and it might take a little bit longer if if people are green to the point where it's like their first experience doing this sort of thing um but yeah 12 months is a uh 12 months is a fair evaluation period for a team because that's also the other thing is uh that's the tough thing about like sketch teams and house teams and things like that. It's like if you string together, if you string together a couple bad shows in a row, then you're kind of fucked. Because like, and I talked about this when we had our like all sketch team meeting. I'm like, it's very important, obviously because it's common sense. Like you want to come out of the gate strong, but it's very important that if you have a bad show, like you need to like course correct immediately because if. People give you a chance after a bad show, but if if you see like two or three bad shows in a row, you're just like, this sucks. <laughs> and the crowds will start going down, and you never hear anybody about a show. Like, you never hear an audience member about a show or anybody around in the comedy community talking about a show being like, hey, have you seen this sketch team? They've gotten really good. It's like... <laughs> Because they don't see you. Right, yeah. Like, if you're a stand-up, you, you can go around. It's it's different stakes because you can bomb and improve. And, and even when you're good, you'll bomb. But, like, a sketch show, it's kind of an event. And it's once a month and stuff like that. And if you string together, like, two or three really bad ones in a row, it's really tough. Because people are like, I'm not going to go fucking see this. Right. Um, so, yeah. What's what do you think is the most difficult thing about doing a, a monthly show? Um I would say the most difficult I mean the most difficult thing for me of doing the monthly show was just like putting together the tech mm. and all the just production stuff behind it, the not fun stuff. Some people think it's fun. Um because I'm very I was always very detailed organized oriented and the one who's like oh i want to make sure that we do this and do it right and i always put a bunch of slides in my sketches and wanted to make sure that those go in the powerpoint right so i'd find myself putting together that stuff and like it was work that i did and i was good at but like i didn't necessarily like 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 one of the dudes that we both know neve uh, oh, yeah, he, loves tech. he loves tech <laughs> yeah. and like but like the last year of the midnight show I was just paying him <laughs> to do our tech and he's like I love tech and I'm like who loves <laughs> tech uh, but yeah good on Neve for loving <laughs> tech like, I was like alright man uh, what do you, what do you, how do you how does a sketch group become like a successful mm. I mean, it depends on what your definition of success <laughs> right, is. Right. It's like, uh, we were never on TV. Um, oh, actually, we well, were on TV. CISO. Yeah, <laughs> we were on CISO. Uh, we took up almost an entire episode of the UCB <laughs> show with one sketch. Uh, we had we had offers. like we. I can talk about this now because they're dead, but uh, <laughs> and we're dead as a unit. But... Um, like there was uh, Comedy Central was very interested and something went sideways over there when we sort of had like we made like a pilot presentation for them. 
there was uh we g- actually got a show that was going to be on TV that they even like cuz cuz we had made this like self-made pr- pilot presentation and this one network was like this network uh Fuel TV was like this is fucking great we'll pay you and we're going to put this on TV and then like the next week it was like announced that like Fuel TV was turning into like Fox Sports 2 <laughs> or FS2 or whatever and it was like yeah that's not going to be happening anymore <laughs> we're going to show like people talking about UFC uh and then we had like uh we had like an offer from TBS, but it was it was the the way it was. It was just it got it kind of got too. Because uh, Heather was like working on stuff, and and I'm working on stuff, and Nick and Joe were writing for American Dad, which was on TBS, but also like it's hard for them to. Like, they had to technically be consultants on our show. It was just, like, it was a tough contractual thing that, that, and our management just told us, like, the deal's not good enough for you guys to sacrifice what you're doing just for the opportunity of making a pilot or whatever. So just walk. And if they offer you, like, a shitload more money, then, like, maybe consider it. And that's, like, a weird thing to 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 do and you kind of wonder like oh what would have happened but what would have probably happened would be we would have made a pilot and would have never made air (laughs) but they were interested in like they were interested in putting us on live like on either like a friday or saturday night which would have been like really cool um but yeah there were interesting things about the contract that uh that made it a, a weird situation so uh, that'd be one way to define But I think, like, I mean, to me, when I moved out here, like, I, I defined success as, like, oh, being rich or driving a nice car or living in a big house or being famous or whatever. And as I, as I got older and started to, I'm like, well, success is just being able to, like get paid to do it you know because there's always there's always going to be people at different levels and and people hitting it upward trajectory an upward trajectory at a uh at uh different ages and stuff like that but like it's good to just not have a day job i guess Mm -hmm. where um not that there's anything wrong with day jobs. Like I've had plenty of day jobs. Like I was a messenger and I worked at Arclight cinema and like all kinds of stuff, but it's a good feeling to, to just pay your bills doing comedy through writing or voiceover or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, a lot of people that I started off with that, that stuck with it do wind up getting paid. Some of them are super famous and some of them are in production or executives or uh, working in digital or whatever it is. But but being able to, to go in and call that your job, like that's that's success. So I would say the Midnight Show was successful in that regard because it was just like we got too busy with our other comedy stuff that we couldn't go down to Hollywood Toy and Costume and buy a bunch of wigs and 
alligator costumes or <laughs> banana costumes or whatever the fucking thing was and waste a bunch of food by pouring it on each other or like whatever the stupid bit was. Um, and we get to the point where we're just like, oh, I fucking love all of you, but, but we just can't, our schedules are such that we can't even get together in the same room for very long periods of time. Uh, that's like, yeah, it's time to call that quits. But I'm very thankful and lucky that I got to experience it because getting to compete with against all those people uh, made me a lot better. And I think we were all better for it and got better by doing it in sort of the iron sharpens iron sort of way. That's the thing about sketch teams that people like complain about all the time. Like we'll get emails from people at the pack where it's like, I don't like being on a team with so-and-so. Uh, or like, I never get my stuff in the show. Or like whatever of a thousand different concerns that, that people tend to have. And it's like, oh, you don't like so-and-so and you've been on a team with them for four months? It's like, I didn't like blank for three years. <laughs> like, I didn't like this one person that I was on a team with for ten years for the first three I was like, I didn't get it. I didn't think they were funny. And now I like, like once, once, you know, you're like, all right, we got each other's back. Like, and your sense of humor starts, starts to wear off on people too, which is like a cool thing in a group where like, I learned a lot. I learned a lot just working. Cause I had my very sort of, uh, things that, that I thought were funny, but I, I learned a lot just watching like Heather Campbell sketches or the way that like Hal Rudnick would uh, approach the specifics within the characters he comes up with or how uh, Nick Wegner or like Joe Chandler were like uh, good at story and like Jeff Sloniker the way like he would commit to stuff and someone like a Jeff Kaufman who uh just he he wrote that pumpkin fucker sketch that apparently there's like some New York sketch team. Oh yeah, yeah. That's like that. suing SNL over like the pumpkin fucker sketch, but it's like it, the Midnight Show was just in the article about that in Vulture, where it was like, well, there's all kinds of pumpkin fucker right. sketches, and I guess ours was the first. <laughs> like we beat cracked by like 16 days back, like <laughs> six years ago. Um, I always thought that like suing SNL is like the, or like just whining about SNL stealing your thing. Right. Uh, we can get to that in a second. Um, <laughs> yeah, just learning, learning from all these people and, and like having your, your sort of sense of humor rub off, or rub off on them and, and theirs rubbing off on you. That's one of the cool things about a team. So like, I want to be there to listen to people when they have, when they come to me or Sam Brown from, from whitest kids, you know, or, or Gina Ippolito, who's, who's great. Like we want to have everybody on, the, on our team's back, but it's also like, sometimes it's just like, Hey, just give it a shot. Like right. we, I feel like we live in a time period where it's like, if you don't, if you don't like somebody, you're just like, it's very, there is no gray area. And that's not necessarily like how I came up. It's like we're humans. Like you can like not like someone and not get along with someone and then grow closer to them. And then like six years or seven years, like you're you're meeting up with them and either going over ideas or just 
hanging out for a drink or a meal or, or something like that. It's like people are too quick to just like give up on each other. So, I mean, that's one of those things that, that I don't get about, about today's youth. <laughs> it's an interesting uh, tension to have too, I think just if like, uh, that you're not, if you're not getting along hundred percent, I don't know. I think that's yeah. kind of cool to have. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I, I think people expect uh, sketch comedy teams to be like, uh, you're fucking lighting candles and singing Kumbaya or becoming like a cult or something like that. And it's like, no, I mean, that can work and it helps to like each other, but it's also healthy to to disagree. Yeah. And also approach is key when you disagree. And I think that's another thing where uh, that people could learn from now is because I, I think we're too quick to... I think nowadays, especially on social media, people are too quick to jump down each other's throats and do things that you would never do if it was like in the same room. And this is speaking like even the midnight show, we had fucking screaming matches and like stuff like that in the early days Uh, and in some of the middle days and not not very much in the later days. But like we would like have screaming matches and arguments. And it's like now if that happens, people are like, oh, I can't I don't can't be around them anymore right, right. and it's like no like people have emotion and you can be like here's how i felt about that but that's another thing that that i've learned growing older is like learning which hills to die on right as far as like especially when you're talking about like comedy skits <laughs> uh and jokes it's like it doesn't need to be that intense we're not going to war or training from an MMA match or like anything like that. We don't need to be screaming about it, but uh, yeah. We were talking about uh, sketch shows earlier. Why, why do you think there's like so few sketch shows these days? I guess kind of there was like a bubble on TV. On TV, yeah. Uh, it's part and parcel as to like, there's just not there's more TV and TV networks than there's ever been even though less people watch it than they ever have. Uh, part of the thing is reality TV because it's cheap, even though it'd be really, it'd be really cheap to do. Like, I don't think it costs like a ton of money to make kids in the hall right. or, or whitest kids, you know, or like anything like that. Or um, like the early second city stuff, uh, from when they were making it in Canada, it was like super low budget. Um, and I think it's just a lot. Of, it's just like reality TV, and people are scared of it. And Comedy Central has the opinion of like, oh, and they've had they've seemed to have had this opinion since Chappelle, where it's like, it it needs to be like a stand up, or it needs to be like Key and Peele, where you can who are awesome uh, and amazing to work with like two of the coolest guys it needs to be like that where it's like you can put two people on a billboard instead of like here are 12 right. or here are seven um that that was that was always sort of a thing like uh people people see snl and they've seen key and peel and they've seen that stuff and they know what it is uh but I, I think it's it's become something that that networks are probably just like, oh, you can just watch a million hours of that on YouTube. 
that people are making for free is like why do it now and if we're gonna do it now we're gonna make it uh we're gonna make it we're gonna make it a vehicle for a stand-up that we want to work with or a solo comedian who does characters where right. it's like it's the blank show where it's blank person um because that's probably easier to promote and like it's easier to make stars that way and it's it's cheaper than paying it's cheaper to pay one star than it is seven or twelve one of the, one of the notes that we always got which always like in like infuriated me was and we got this from almost every network they were just like there's too many of you and it's like, no, there fucking isn't. There is not, like, if there's seven of us, if there's 12 of us, there's not too many of us. There's actually less of us than are on any other TV show. <laughs> yeah. It's like, if you watch a sitcom, it's like they have, like, that many main and ancillary characters, and then they have all these guest stars, and they're like, there's too many people. Like, the audience is going to get confused. And it's like, no, there isn't. There are TV shows, like, in Game of Thrones, there's, like, hundreds of people <laughs> on that show. Uh, give the audience like a little bit of credit, but um, yeah, that's just a note I've disagreed with. And cable TV is stupid now because <laughs> they don't understand Netflix and they don't understand Hulu and they, they're like, oh, binge watching is a thing. So what we're going to do is we're going to take uh, Guy Fieri and put him on TV for fucking 12 hours straight with his <laughs> stupid ass fucking show. But we're going to play commercials like every fucking four minutes. And it's like, that's not why that's not why people are not watching cable right. and watching Netflix is to not watch marathons of that stuff. It used to be special when there was a marathon. Now it's that's all they do is like marathons and four hour chunks of the same show. And like I only watch cable for sports, really. And I don't even pay for it. I just get like PlayStation View, which I pay for. But like. Yeah, I just stream cable. Uh, sorry, that's my cable rant. <laughs> but but Netflix and Hulu, maybe maybe some exec with a with a a love for sketch comedy will make a decision with with the right people at the right mm -hmm. time and and have something kind of explode in the way that uh, SNL did in the seventies, or even like on a on a different scale any of the the popular sketch shows that that we love mm -hmm. uh i like the the birthday boy show but like that that didn't even get and uh, like many seasons yeah uh i didn't have cable at the time so i like i never really seen it like i mm -hmm. love those guys um it's good yeah yeah it was good i, cool, I enjoyed cool. it i think you only got two seasons though but i don't know yeah and I, just from people who've seen it, like I've I've heard, there's like a lot of cameos from like uh, Ben Stiller and Bob Odenkirk and and people like oh, that. I think so. Yeah. Where yeah. it's like, to me, when I hear that, I'm just like, that feels to me like the network, and that might just be them. Like I know that those two guys help get the show made, and you you definitely want to have cameos, but it's like, also just trust these guys that they're right. great and right. just let them do their show, like. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily need to add unnecessary bells and whistles to great sketch, and and birthday boys are great sketch. Uh, yeah. What's your What's your favorite sketch from the Midnight Show? What I say last time? I don't remember. <laughs> I think it was uh, a, a little. It was a little unknown one. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Uh, 
favorite sketch favorite sketch that I didn't write um I mean there's a lot but like favorite sketch I didn't write was probably just the visual of Heather Heather Campbell brought in this sketch uh where like she was playing a little a little sick girl at a hospital and she was a big fan of Baymax which <laughs> I don't even know what ba- what like what's Baymax from Wait, like Betamax? No, Baymax, like this like bubble marshmallow sort of oh, like character. Big Hero Six, I think. Probably, yeah. yeah. Uh, she's like a big fan of him, so like they had someone in a cost in a Baymax costume show up, and she bought this fucking giant inflatable <laughs> costume uh, that was fucking huge. That like Jeff Sloniker was inside, and Jeff's like Jeff and Heather were our most physical actors, but like the bit with the, the thing was that the guy in the Baymax costume was like got stuck in it somehow like the zipper broke and he was like freaking out because he couldn't breathe and it's like one of the funniest visuals like I, like I was laughing so hard like I couldn't breathe when I was watching it um but there were like a, a ton of other ones that pumpkin fucker one that we mentioned earlier was really good Hal Rudnick wrote one during the Jerry Sandusky uh, Penn State situation. Uh, it wasn't about it wasn't about kids, but uh, it was it was really good. Um, I don't I only say that because like I don't want pe- people coming after Hal for like making fun of like child abuse or like anything like that. But um, it was about him coaching football. But uh, and that one was really good. That was one of the louder crowd reactions in the theater. Um, and and I think my answer from last time was like I yeah I don't ever. And I talk about this with my students sometimes. Like, part of the fun thing about sketch comedy is like, I I never like really kick back, like kick my feet up and be like, "Well, that's my favorite that I've ever done." <laughs> right, and like, right. part of the part of the fun thing about doing sketch comedy or writing comedy in general is like the the almost addictive sort of chase of like, "Oh, that was good. Let's see if I can do something better." Um, but I'd say like the one that I was most proud of was probably the. Uh, Probably the uh, – it's online, and we did it when uh, Sam Brown and and Trevor Moore from Whitest Kids You Know were, like, guest hosting our show uh, called Marge Simpson Haircut. And it's just like – it's like the stupidest fucking sketch, (laughs) and uh, it shouldn't have – it shouldn't have ever gotten in the show uh, because the first draft I wrote was, like, really – I just wrote it in a hurry. Like, I was – probably i was always late to the meeting because like the meeting the deadline meeting would be like 4 30 p.m on sunday and i'd be writing up until like 4 25 and then like get there like 10 minutes late with like a ton of sketches uh so they never yelled at me about it but um like i was writing out to the deadline and there just was it was just like a rush draft where there weren't any jokes and it kind of didn't make sense and this was a january show and we were always on the first sunday of the month so this writing deadline was like probably like New Year's Eve or something like that. Uh, so there were only like three of us or four of us at the meeting. So like basically anything that was written got into that month's <laughs> show. And I was like, fuck, we have to do this sketch. <laughs> like I don't even we when we read it out loud, I didn't even understand what was supposed to be funny about it. And I didn't really put jokes. So. I just went back and I tried to make it fucking, I just tried to punch up like every line and make it as weird as fucking possible and 
raise the stakes because there were no stakes. Uh, make it more physical because it wasn't physical at all. Uh, and it wound up turning into like, there are just so many weird things about the sketch and the crowd seemed to like it uh, that I was like really proud of it because it was something that should have really been a train wreck <laughs> that, that turned into something that, that seemed to go pretty well. And also like we have it online and, and people don't watch like live sketch comedy from theaters online, but we have some of our better sketches that we personally like over the years, like up online. And that one's got like a lot of views. So like, I assume someone digs it or they just find it because it's called Marge Simpson haircut. And <laughs> like, it's just a uh, keyword jamming of the <laughs> Simpsons. But, uh, but yeah. And I've also like, there was one sketch. This was when Zach Kreger from whitest kids, you know, hosted our show. Uh, I wrote this sketch that I was for sure gonna fucking destroy. Uh, and, uh, like, right before it happened, like, Zach was always, like, really nice to me and really supportive. And it actually, like, meant, like, he would come speak to my classes sometimes and, or, like, pull me aside at a party and, like, dude, you're, like, really good. Or, like, what I, that sounds egotistical to say, but it was more so, it, he, he would say that stuff at a time in my life. And I don't know him that well at all. But he would just say random stuff to me at a time in my life where I wasn't feeling very confident and, like, I had nothing going for me. Um, so, like, I always remember those, like, small things that meant a lot. So I, like, cockily, I cocky, in a cocky way, I went up to him right before the sketch started. I'm like, dude, check out this next one. <laughs> there was, like, some sketch. I can't even remember because, like, I, like, blocked it out of my mind. But it was, like... There was nothing to it. Like, we were laughing so hard. We were laughing so hard in rehearsal and when we read it. And it was very dumb and juvenile. It was like Stephanie Allen, who used to be in our group, who's who's very funny and, like, uh, has a very sort of dry, just nice voice. Uh, she uh, was, like, hosting a party or something. I think it was, like, she was hosting a true blood watch party or something like that, but she kept farting and shitting her pants or like something like it's, it doesn't even sound funny explaining it, but I did like cram a lot of jokes into it to the point where like everybody, everybody in the read through loved it. We couldn't stop laughing at rehearsal. I would go up to Zach. I'm like, dude, check out this next one. This next one's going to be really good. And then like it bombed for like fucking, <laughs> six straight minutes. It was like, the sketch was too long as well. Like, I felt so bad for like, like putting Stephanie in the position of like being a star in a sketch that bombed that bad and like, whatever. And I was just always thinking about that because it was almost like right out of a sitcom or a movie or something where it's like, this is going to be the coolest thing ever. (laughs) And it's like the worst. Um, But yeah. Uh, Oh, I, I, I know this is going long. I, I kept saying, oh, we'll talk about this later just because it's like, that's like the annoying thing if we never get to it on a podcast where it's like, oh, we'll talk about it later. Uh, the the two things, the auditioning for SNL and the... Um, oh, right. The, 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 the people suing SNL. The first thing about the audition for SNL is like, yeah, when I was like in my early 20s, like I was flown out to audition... Uh, the year that like Andy Samberg and Bill Hader got on and, and, and they're great. Uh, and yeah, it was scary um, because there was like, 
I was at first told I wasn't going and I was like kind of depressed because it felt like the year it, it felt like if it was going to happen, it was going to happen that year because they never seemed to immediately replace people uh, of whatever type that they feel fits the show. They never replace them immediately, meaning if like Lonely Island leaves, they don't just bring in another YouTube sketch group or another online video group immediately they give it a breathing room of a season then they bring in good neighbor or or whatever uh and this was like this was jimmy fallon had left uh and then there was like a year of breathing room where they didn't have like a dorky young dude um and that's when they like flew out like like 12 or 24 however many like dorky young dudes uh and i was told that i I was told that I wasn't going to go and like by my manager, it kind of bummed me out and I was like, okay. So I just went and did a show and I kind of woke up late the next day cause I didn't have to work until night and I'd missed like a dozen calls, uh, from, from Brillstein, my management company. And, uh, they all got increasingly more. It was like, at first it was like, Hey Eric, uh, give us a call. Uh, this will be great. Uh, and, and, as as they went along, it was like, I think there's a scene like this, and like uh, I've seen, I think I've seen a scene like this in some movie where the the messages keep getting meaner and madder. But it was just like, Eric, call us now. Uh, and I, I called, and they're like, Hey, we're putting uh, Ed from SNL, or like whoever the fucking person was, uh, on the phone. Like they patched me in and they're like oh i really loved your tape and it's like oh that's weird because like yesterday i heard you didn't uh really loved your tape um we're gonna fly you out uh would you be ready to leave in like an hour and i'm like yeah okay (laughs) so they like sent a town car to my fucking broke ass apartment and uh flew me out and uh, oh and the other thing was like yeah don't do anything on on your tape uh, come up with all new stuff. I'm like, <laughs> oh shit. Well, that was like my best stuff, and it was like, I'm not as much as I've shit on like a lot of the things that I've done in the past. Like, I'm not one to like butter myself up, but that tape was really good because uh, I did most of it in one take. Because I didn't want to be like, oh, they're hiding behind. Uh, and I've even sent in tapes like this too, but I I didn't want to be like, oh, they're hiding behind the costume or like the only funny thing about it's the costume. It was just me, the way I was normally dressed. I did a bunch of impressions in a row and I did some characters. And I, I thought it was a pretty good tape. Uh, and they were like, yeah, don't do anything for that tape. And I'm like, oh shit. So I'm like, can I figure out different bits for those same impressions and, and, and whatever? So I had about... Uh, you lose it. You lose three hours flying to New York, so it's like you get on a plane at like two or three, and you land there at late at night. I was yeah. too scared to sleep because the audition was like at noon or one, and I didn't want to be like the kid who overslept and missed his like <laughs> thing, especially because it was like it's past the point of acceptable oversleeping. Like if the right, audition right. was like eight or ten in the morning, you could maybe understand, but not if it's at one. But also like I didn't really get settled into my room until like two or three in the morning and stayed up all night writing yeah. and practicing. Um, but yeah, it was like the way I explained it, I think last time was just like it was so scary that it almost wasn't because you had like no other choice. It's mm-hmm. like getting in a car accident is scary 
if if in a vacuum but it's like well you don't really have a choice other than to be in the car accident <laughs> and, and sort of deal with it so it was uh just a lot of adrenaline and i i remember all i all i packed was like an extra shirt because my manager was like oh everybody sweats everybody sweats <laughs> their armpits sweat a lot during these auditions so like just bring a different shirt and don't put it on until right before you go on camera so i was like all I had was like two shirts and a pair of prop glasses because I was like, <laughs> okay, I have to come up with some characters, so I guess I'll bring prop glasses. And uh, they're like, is there anything you need? I'm like, yeah, give me like a, a wireless mic. And I never saw my tape. And I, like, I never wound up because I, once I got up there, I'm like, oh, I never used the wireless mic. I wonder if like they even fucking picked it up the audio on the camera. Like there's obviously the people oh, watching yeah, you yeah. do it live, but. Uh, but yeah, and and also right before you do it, you're in hair and makeup, so you can hear the people going through the vents before you. I remember hearing uh, Yorma from Lonely Island. I remember hearing uh, Kristen Wiig do the Target Lady, um, and they were always like, "They're not gonna laugh. They're not gonna laugh." Like they they get that in your head, uh, and they were like fucking laughing their asses off. <laughs> like I mean, they wound up on the show. Uh, but, but I think it was like, like, and I got some laughs too. I, I think it was like, they don't laugh at first cause they want to see if you show it on your face mm-hmm. because like, you're going to go out on live TV and do something. You're going to, you're, you're going to go out on live TV and, and tell Zach Crager right before you go out, Hey, check this out. <laughs> and then like, <laughs> and it doesn't go the way you expect and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, and I think, think they want to see how people like handle that right. sort of thing. Um, so, yeah. Did, so, wait, but did your actual like audition go well? <laughs> I mean, it went okay, no, but no. I was, in, I was so in my head about it. Like, yeah. I was so in my head about it that I was like second guessing. I'm like, did I even do the right celebrity after I said the thing? <laughs> like, cause, uh, you, you're in hair and makeup and they send you out and they take you right to Lauren Michaels. And it's like meeting the fucking Pope <laughs> or like something like that. And it's like, uh, which is like amazing. Like I, I always sort of looked up to him and, uh, cause of his contributions to comedy in general. And they bring you over to Lauren, and he's like uh, sitting off to the side. And he's like, "Hi, Eric. Thank you for coming." And he's like, "Way, I, I'm doing like the Doctor Evil impression, but he's like way more pleasant than that. Mm. Like you're used to seeing him play Lauren on Saturday Night Live, where he's like, yeah, well, I don't know. And I guess there is an element of that to him, but he was like very like friendly and smiley, and this like threw me." And I remember it was like, thank you for coming. And like my own self-doubt, I'm like, what does he mean by that? Like, <laughs> did I... You've already lost it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, uh, did he think I wasn't going to come? Like, what? what? Um, and then you go do it. You go stand on the stage where the host does the monologue. You've probably seen other people's auditions uh, that have like leaked out. Uh, you stand on the stage where the, the celebrity host does the monologue and you address the camera, but they're all sitting off to the side. And they're like, don't play to Lauren and don't play to the to the people sitting with him, which makes sense. And especially having been in sketch team auditions at I.O. where they did that sort of thing. And like people are like playing to you and coming over to you. And oh, it's like right. really uncomfortable when there's no one in the room. Uh, so you're just playing the camera. And all I just remember is like staring into a fucking red light for like six <laughs> minutes and like getting some laughs and like 
getting out of it and just feeling immediately depressurized. It was like some of those sports. Do you know like the Carrier Dome where Syracuse plays basketball? Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like the, the, the dome is actually held up by air pressure. So like when you walk oh. outside of it, it's like there's like a big gust of wind. And they warn you about it. The Tokyo Dome is the same way. They don't really build sports stadiums that way anymore because it's too hard to hold up these heavy roofs <laughs> with air pressure. But like when you walk out of them, it's like whoosh, because uh, the, the air pressure is so much higher inside than it is outside, which holds the dome up. Like that's kind of what it felt like was just like walking out of Studio 8H. just like, oh, God, thank God. <laughs> uh I was just like, I need to go back to my room and uh, take a nap or something. Um, but yeah, it was it was weird. Did uh, how, how would you change things differently if you had like a big audition? Like, if say you, had, you auditioned for SNL again, how would you change things differently? I think I just would have like, I don't know. The thing I've always sucked at with auditioning is like, auditioning just sucks. Right. Period. Um, I think I just put too much pressure on myself. Like, you see the people who, who are successes. Like, you can go on YouTube and watch uh, auditions of successful actors or, uh, whatever. It's just the people who are have fun, and and have fun in the moment. Like I've seen, I've seen Andy Samberg talk in interviews, like about pro- It was like the same day where he's like, I was puking in my fucking dressing room and i'm like shit i mean if that guy was puking like he seemed like the coolest like all right how we going how's it going dudes uh and i'm like like sweating and like scared to talk to anybody and like uh he seemed chill but even he was puking in his dressing room or i guess uh but but he just went out and had fun and, and uh, the people who go out and have fun uh in, in whatever you're doing, like even if you're doing serious dramatic acting, like you're like Daniel Day-Lewis, who we were talking about this with like Michael Scarston or someone like out on the street. We're just like, yeah, he acts hard. Like he's, <laughs> he's, you can like, really tell he's acting. But like even when he's acting so hard or like doing well, like there is a sense of fun and play. Right. to like you can tell he loves what he's doing, whereas uh, – Sometimes in auditions, it's just like you you go into a white room with people and they're reading it like, oh, so here's your car, Mr. Smith. Like that, like mm-hmm. reading it flat to you and you're supposed to be like loose and, and, and playing it right. I just always tell people like, have fun. Don't fucking worry about whether they like you or not. Like I had, I've had a couple different managers throughout the years. Uh, even though I'm with the same company that I started off with, but like one of them said, and I never take this to heart, but I, I always try to pass along to students is like, don't worry about whether or not they like you. Like, don't even stress over that. Uh, because if you somehow trick them and they don't get you, you're going to be miserable working for them right. anyways. So just do your thing and be you and, and have fun in being you. Uh, because like if, if they don't get it, it's it's not going to work out anyways. So who gives a shit? And if they don't pick you for whatever the part is, like sometimes you go in for a part and they're just like, well, we want someone with red hair. <laughs> like we just decided like, oh, the one with the mustache was fun. Uh, it's never like everybody's pretty good. 
who tries. Um, so yeah, a lot of it's a lot of it's luck and being in the right place at the right time or from the right people, and that's mm-hmm. one of the frustrating things about our business is like you can have fun and do your best, and uh, it still might not work out. Right. Um, but yeah. How did you get started at the the Pack Theater? Um, this is, uh, this is kind of tied into SNL too. Uh, uh, Heather Campbell was teaching like a, she had just started teaching an improv class, um, because her and Miles Stroth do a two person team, Heather and Miles, which is amazing. If anyone's ever in LA when they're doing a show together, like go check it out. Like they've, they've known each other since Heather was like 14 at IO Chicago and, and taking classes there and showing up. Um, uh, Miles had branched off from IO West and just started teaching improv classes on his own. And he's like, Oh, Heather, if you want to teach, uh, if you want to teach one over here, then do it. And I think she taught like one and was about to teach the next one. And she had already like, when you teach classes, you got to rent the room. And it's typically in two-month chunks, so you're on the hook for $400 or $600 or however much it is to to rent a classroom. Uh, And she, right before her September class was going to start, she got got hired by SNL as a writer. So she's like, ah, I guess I could eat this 400 bucks or however much it was, or I could find someone to teach a class. Um... So she was like, oh, I mean, she's like, oh, I've learned from you or or whatever. It was like the way she phrased it at the time, even though she's fucking way better than I am. (laughs) Uh, And she knows how like seriously I I took sketch comedy. She's like, you should teach like a writing class. And I'm like, I don't know who would teach it. This was nine years ago. So I hadn't I hadn't had any tv credits yet really like i hadn't written for like eric andre show or like any of the other things um and i'm like yeah i mean i could do this i guess like ucb never earmarked me as a teacher because i'm uh always look serious and marble mouth as as some of the as some of the listeners probably understood by now but uh they never sort of earmarked me as as anyone who'd be a teacher even though, like, I've always loved sketch comedy. I've loved thinking about it and, and and shit like that. So I was like, yeah, I'll give it a shot. And I just sat down and figured, like, okay, like, what would the assignments be? What did I get? What did I not learn in a sketch one class that I would have liked to learn? So we had a couple different assignments than you typically get. And I wrote out that really long fucking... Uh, diatribe about sketch comedy that we pass out on the first week which contains a lot of basic stuff but just like a a lot of other stuff like i sat down in one night and like wrote that uh the night before the first class and that was nine years ago and people wound up taking it and uh they wound up uh taking it more to the point where like First class we did was like ten people because someone from SNL was like, and, and my other friends who were who were more successful than me were like, oh, take this class from Eric. He kind of knows what he's talking about. Um, then, uh, then like my second class had like three people, and Miles <laughs> was like, "Do you want to cancel it?" Because uh, I'm like, "No, I'll 
teach this for basically free, paying for the room for three people. And it was uh, Nikki Urban and Keith Seltajanes and uh, this guy, uh, Rustum, uh, who's not really around the pack anymore, but uh, but does a bunch of commercial stuff. Uh, and and then from, from that class of like three people, which was really uh, weird for them, I'm sure, because we basically just sat around talking. Like we'd read their three sketches, which would take, 25 minutes right. to like, read them and note them then we'd sit around and just have conversations like this uh for like three hours and then uh started getting more and more and then teaching offering a second class and a third class and, and the it became the pack because it wasn't the pack yet like it only became the pack theater and, and shows every night like uh 2016 um so it's just kind of grown over the years and uh I started off I started off being like, oh, I guess I'll do it, but I've grown to like really like it. And I I never really wanted the uh sort of stigma of being a teacher, but I was lucky enough that some of my early sketch teachers were like Scott Ackerman. Like Scott Ackerman was my UCB one oh one teacher and we were in like the first ever sketch class at UCBLA. Um, and then like Matt Besser was like my advanced teacher and it was cool. I always thought it was cool that to have teachers that were, Oh, I'm doing other stuff, but also doing this too right. more so than they're just doing it cause they need to do it. Um, cause I never wanted to be thought of like, Oh, Eric's just doing this cause he can't do anything else. Cause like, I wanted to be more like what they were doing where it's like, we don't need this shit, but also we like it and right. let's, let's do it. So, um, and I also think it, it teaching, like, I love seeing like the light bulb come on for people, um, where it's just like, like, I'm a very supportive teacher because I don't want to be a teacher. It's just like, oh, that's not funny or like mean or like whatever. Cause like that doesn't help. And with comedy, you know, right. it's like, if nobody in the class laughs, you don't need me to say, well, this isn't funny. <laughs> it's like, that's just going to hurt people's feelings. Uh, so we try to keep it positive and, and, and find the stuff, but I, I like seeing the light bulbs go on in people's heads from, from people who have no idea what they're doing to becoming proficient at it to a couple years down the road being like pretty awesome at it. And I love, uh, I, I love that. I, I feel like it, it kind of keeps me sharp because even though it's not me actually writing, it's like. You got to be in the moment. You got to be reading the things, and then kind of diagnosing problems with the thing, and it it keeps my mind sharp because I'm not writing sketches like every day unless it's for work or something like that. Um, but it, it's a good way to to keep in that sort of mindset. Yeah. So I like doing it. What do you think are like the biggest uh, the pitfalls you see of like sketches in class? Uh. Not enough jokes. That's that's always a major thing. I mean, just going back to the one I was talking about, the one that I punched up enough that I was like, oh, this shouldn't even be in a show. So like, I knew how I had to punch it up. Not enough jokes is one because like people just don't try jokes sometimes. And it's like, okay, this is like fine, but you're not trying any jokes, and they don't have to be like super duper clever. But it, like jokes are dialogue jokes are just little surprises you got to throw in more surprises uh in your dialogue and you gotta if sitcoms 
whether it's multicam or single cam, if they have like a ton of jokes, like you should at least have as many jokes as a sitcom, if not more. Uh, so try more jokes. I always also think like confusing things that are confusing are the biggest thing that, that especially new people struggle with when they write something. It's just confusing. I often think that something's not funny for a couple main reasons. Like one, there's just not enough jokes. Two, it's just boring. <laughs> or three, it's confusing. Uh, and confusing is a big one because people, especially when they're f- like figuring out how to do comedy, they'll try to throw too many things in there. And it's like, wait, I don't even know what the, f- like, what's going on in this? <laughs> like, everybody's crazy. If everybody's crazy, then it's like, okay, this is just crazy town, which is fine, but we don't have anything to sink our teeth into as an audience. Like everything like feels like sort of unrelated. Um, But yeah, that's something that new people do a lot where it's just like, you're just like looking at it and you're like, what, what is this? (laughs) What is this supposed to be? And I think people too often try to invent situations more so than take a a simple relatable situation and turn it on its ear. Mm -hmm. So they'll be like, uh, well, they'll like kind of mad libs it where it's like, oh, I'm going to write a sketch where it's like Vikings, but they're on Mars, but they, uh, they're having a pie eating contest. But th- then the twist is hot dogs are falling from the sky, so they can't eat the pies or like whatever fucking crazy scenario you want to invent. It's like, no, that's way too many things that are happening. Just set something in like a restaurant <laughs> or like, <laughs> let's just set something in the waiting area at an airport or like places where people go and then you can figure out the more inventive situations later but like hey let's just set something at the mall at hot topic and have this go sideways have this situation go sideways somehow right and then once we figure that out then we can go to mars uh but just have it be martians it doesn't need to be vikings it's like too many things on top of other things is monty python would say um yeah and uh, at, at the pack you kind of started like a like a sketch uh t- house team program i guess i don't know that's that what you say at the ha- house team program yeah uh that i mean i didn't start it mm-hmm. it was started uh i was just on facebook one night and uh Someone was like, oh, if you're submitting to be on the pack sketch teams, uh, let us know by, like, whatever. I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) I'm like, these, (laughs) not to, like, I kind of sound like a dick, but I'm like, wait, what's going on? Like, if you, I never wanted teams. Because I was just like, we used to have our level three show be like, hey, we're going to teach you how to do a show. Go fucking do your own show somewhere. And that was also because, like, the pack didn't have... The pack just did improv on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Like, we didn't really have a sketch thing. And uh, we we had started through these classes turning out teams. Like, there was Brute Squad, who, sent, who wound up like a house team at IO West. Uh, there was uh, 100% Stuff, Tiny Muscles. Um, a lot of people who wound up being good teams, even on, on the house team night. But uh, Denise Denise Ojeda, who's awesome, uh, she was just hungry to get something going. So she, she was like, oh, we're going to have sketch night. And it was originally like 
four of our teams. It was uh, Tiny Muscles, 100% Stuff. I feel really bad that I forget the other <laughs> one. Did I even? It wasn't Brute Squad. It was uh, oh, Good Foot was one. Uh, and uh, the fourth week was uh, Jonathan Grant was hosting this like show with a rotating cast called like Polytrigamisterius something Greek that was like really. <laughs> it was like two words that were like really long. And, uh, and and the goal was like okay those teams would do like 30 minutes and then they'd invite an indie sketch team to do 30 minutes and I was like okay if you y'all really want to try it like let's do it I'm gonna go watch and, and whatever and like the thing that we noticed is like the, the pack teams would draw because like they had learned from me and Sam and Heather about like okay here's how you promote and here's here's how you do that stuff um and then uh, the Indian indie teams, like, no one would come watch them. <laughs> so I'm just like, shit, we need to put together some teams, is is what I essentially told Denise. So, like, we scrambled, and, and also we were like, we need to rename Jonathan Grant's the Poly Trigger <laughs> Mysterious uh, Trigamosa, or, like, whatever it was called, and we're like... If it's a rotating sketch cast, just call it like Rotato or like something like that. So that's what it wound up being called. And uh, we were like, okay. So we just started emailing. We would never do it like this now because we'd be accused of favoritism. But uh, we just started emailing like our alums and be like, hey, do you want to be on a sketch team? Like we're, we're doing shows now and we're like basically having to recruit people. And we recruited a lot of people, and there were um, – oh, Daughters of Triton was also one of the other teams. Um, we were recruiting people, and to their credit, they are just like, fuck, yeah, all right. And I was, like, very surprised about that. And, like, some really good people too, uh, good performers and good writers. And I was like, shit, okay. And then there were also people who were like – no i'm good like they're like this isn't gonna work and we're like okay but if it does work like you'll probably wind up having to submit and stuff like that later on and like i remember one guy was like no i'm good that's kind of he said it was like minor league to him and it, it made me really mad and uh i didn't i didn't do anything but i i was like if i'm fucking doing something we're not gonna have it be minor league uh and then they submitted a couple years later when we had submissions and, and we do our submissions blind, uh, meaning like we take off the names and, and stuff from the packets because like that's how I heard they did it at SNL. And I want people to be judged by the quality of their work, not like, oh, does Eric like me or does Sam like me or does blah, blah, or Gina like me or like whoever. Like, I think that's that's how I'd want to be treated. And um, that person like, had like one of the worst scores and they're like so you're telling me i couldn't get on one of those teams and i'm like i don't know what to tell you uh you had like the like the second to worst score out of everyone and your name wasn't on it and uh sorry uh that you didn't even make this minor league and they probably just thought that like oh Eric's mad at me and that's why I didn't get on a team. It's like, no, I fucking thought this person was really good. And like, I wanted them on a team. Uh, so it started off 
sort of weird like that where it was like we were reaching out to people more so than than having auditions but then it started to get to the point where it's like okay we got to have open auditions uh and and we got to do it fairly and and i think the first year of submissions there's like 30 that was the year that the the one person didn't get on teams uh there was like uh one that was like 30 and then it went up to like a hundred and then like last year was like 200 or Jeez. something like that. And, wow. um, that's another thing is like people, sometimes people are like, Oh, they just let anyone on a team over at the pack. And I'm like, no, like our team, like we have some teams that aren't good, but <laughs> our best teams, there, there are a couple that are always, it, it's, it's just going to be that way anywhere. It's that way right, at like right. UCB where they have like a thousand people submitting. It's like, there's still like two teams that are just like, Oh, this sucks. And I, two teams out of eight is two bad teams out of eight is tough. And two bad teams out of 16 is, uh, I mean, at least a little better, I would say, uh, not competing with them, but, um, but yeah, it's like, we, it's it's gotten pretty big, and if anyone wants to try it, uh, they're more than welcome to take classes and submit. But I would just also say, uh, I always say this about I I students tell me that they appreciate my honesty about things like this, but I'm like, never let a fucking comedy school tell you whether or not you're funny. Like that's that's what I would tell the person who didn't didn't make teams that one year when they're like, oh. I didn't get picked for this. Uh, you don't need a comedy school to fucking tell you whether or not you're funny. There's the internet. There's like festivals, like screenwriting festivals and TV writing festivals and, and, and all kinds of stuff. Like do your own shit. Who Like don't, that, that's, that's the thing that bums me out about when we were talking about this very early in the show. That's the thing that bums me out about LA comedy is like people, feel like they need this approval from from UCB or the pack or, or wherever it is and if they don't get that they kind of just be like well if I'm not good enough to do that I'll just quit and it's right. like no if you love it don't fucking let them like who cares uh it's like if you wind up on a, a Herald team or a, a sketch team or whatever it is, you might wind up hating it anyways and wanting to do your own stuff. So, like, just use that as an opportunity. Like, if you love it, figure out where you can get better and, and, and do it. And don't don't hold these these people in, in positions of making decisions on, on pedestals and things like that. Like, you should be wanting to do this shit whether you get their approval or their check mark or their good job or, or whatever so yeah i mean that's how i feel about it mm -hmm. but also take my comedy class if you want that, that's always <laughs> what i'm like too it's like you don't have to like people will so uh <laughs> like, um yeah well it is always funny how like people come here to like do like people come to la to do like write like write for like tv or movies and stuff and yeah. then they get obsessed with like the the minutiae of like the la comedy scene yeah and it's like you're wasting your like time and like emotional energy thinking yeah, about this. Yeah, and you're prime. Yeah, like that's another thing is like I, I do like I did like a lot of sketch, and I feel like it's it's put me in positions of like I got things that I probably would have never gotten with that experience, and I also got better. And that is the other side of what I tell people in my class is like sketch comedy seems very impractical. 
Like, why did you pay $300 to go learn sketch comedy when it's like there's like 20 writing jobs on SNL or you can do <laughs> stuff for free on YouTube or join any of the, the YouTube channels that are dying uh, or bleeding money left and right. Um, <laughs> but what you should be doing sketch comedy for is it's hard to get together with your friends and make a movie. It's not impossible. People do it every year, and that's why Sundance and film festivals and stuff like that exist. It's not impossible. It's just hard, and it's expensive. And uh, I know what it's like to struggle and not be like, hey, can we just get, like, hey, let's raise $80,000 and make this, or, like, whatever. Because, like, no one has that when they move out, or most people don't. <laughs> um, or, and it's hard to, to just get together with your friends and make a TV show. Uh, it's not impossible. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. Start off as basically just them shooting stuff in their camcorder around their apartment building. And that was like the proto-pilot of their show. It's not impossible. People have done it and, and, and whatever. But it's not hard to get together with your friends and make a video. Or go to a place like UCB where they have Not Too Shabby or go to the pack where they have Go Sketch Yourself and just get that practice because sketch comedy is great for, if you don't think of it as impractical, it's great for all that sort of micro practice in performing and writing scripted comedy mm -hmm. scenes that you can't really get. Like improv is great, but improv is great for uh, sort of coming up with ideas and also like training yourself as an actor. I, I've always felt better as an actor when I was doing more improv. Uh, but the sketches were like, Hey, write like a sci-fi sketch or write like a, like, write like a Western sketch or like you, you might even develop a show based off a sketch. Like I've, the show that I'm like trying to develop right now, just start off as like a, a character in a sketch. Um, and that's what people should use sketch comedy for because it can, it can feel really daunting to be like, okay. I'm going to move to L.A. and I'm going to write a 90-page screenplay. It's like you should do that. And it's daunting to be like, I'm going to write this pilot. And some people get scared too, even though like it only really takes like a weekend. <laughs> uh, but it's easy to write like three or four pages of something and put it up and, and start to learn and build your own internal compass of, of what you think works and doesn't work in front of audiences. And that's why I tell people like, like there's – like a lot of the, the biggest comedy people do have sketch comedy backgrounds and I think they're better for it. And like, they're better for it even in other genres. Like I look at someone like Jordan Peele, who's like awesome. And Jordan's a guy like he, I mentioned him performing at boom Chicago in Amsterdam with Heather. Like they do, they do live shows like sketch and improv, like almost every night in front of tourists and like, I couldn't imagine how valuable that experience right. was and like the confidence you'd get to where like, okay, I know audiences, I know what people like, I know what they don't like. And that's why I wasn't surprised at all when like get out became huge because, uh, yeah, it's like some people were like, wait, the guy from key and peels making like a thriller. Like that was like a thing that like some, uh, Hollywood media and stuff. That was like a sentiment at the time. And it's like, no, this is going to be fucking good. Cause that dude's really fucking smart and amazingly talented. And he knows what the fuck he's doing. And he's got a ton of experience in front of audiences. 
and, and word of mouth like really propelled that thing to to the heights that it did. Uh, so that, that that's what I think sketch comedy is really good for. Um, yeah. What would you uh, like to be doing next? Um, I don't know. <laughs> like what I'm gonna do next is watch the NCAA basketball tournament. Oh yeah, it starts Some, tomorrow, just, right? Yeah, probably. The first four days of that are really fun. Right. Thursday and Friday and Saturday and Sunday. And then, like, when it gets in the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight and the Final Four, I kind of don't really care as much anymore. It's like – but uh, I, I really enjoy the first four days. Um, but as far as comedy, like, I'm I'm developing a show. Like, I have a production company that uh, – I have, like, a, a – we're shopping it around. So uh, – and I got a really cool uh, executive – co-executive producer i think i'm co i think i'm pretty sure my my management fought for that but uh yeah i got a cool co-ep who's helping me develop it and they've they've had some shows in the past that were pretty cool so uh yeah that's the main thing is like hoping to try to to get that going um if it doesn't try again with another idea uh yeah and keep doing shit at the pack and and making some videos every now and then uh paid or unpaid or yeah. like whatever the thing is and keep doing it i kind of want to do even though i suck at i i, I suck at talking but i do kind of want to start getting into podcasting a little bit so i might be coming out with a couple podcasts oh. me and uh me and one of my friends from the midnight show have been flirting with the idea we're just kind of trying to figure it out and uh They've got a pretty big social media following, so I, I think it would it, it would hopefully be cool. I don't know, <laughs> um, but yeah, those are those are boring answers. But yeah, <laughs> mostly I'm just trying to trying to watch the tournament. That's why we had to do Wednesday. <laughs> it's like I can't do Thursday and Friday. What time? Did, the game starts so early here, right? Yeah, like se- it must start like seven a.m. or eight a.m. Nine. Wow. Yeah. That's always the weird thing about college sports. When you move to the West Coast, where there's football or basketball, it's like the shit starts at like nine. Mm-hmm. Ten for the NFL is a little bit more reasonable, but like nine, especially on weekends, feels really early. Right. And I love college sports, so like I'll watch it. But but then when you go when I go back to the East Coast to visit my parents for like the holidays or something, I just get like bored. I'm like, <laughs> why isn't there basketball on as soon as I wake up? Why aren't there football games going? Like people go out for breakfast and brunch here, right? And then wait for the ACC games to start. Um, I'm a big European soccer fan, so when I was here, oh, yeah, it was like, do I stay up for 4 a.m.? Do I wake up for yeah, 4 a.m.? That's that, a tough call. That was I usually just would not watch games. <laughs> yeah. I did that. I did that with New Japan Pro Wrestling, uh, oh. which is really great. I'm I'm really into wrestling, but like they have their shows at 3 a.m. But oh, the wow. shows are like three hours long, so it's like that thing. It's like, do you stay up till 3 a.m. or do you? That's too like 3 a.m. is too early to wake up. Like mm-hmm. four is very early, but you have crazy people like Mark Wahlberg who's like, oh, I wake up every day at well, that's 4 a.m. and like that, that that thing was not true. I that's what I think too. Like when they say like The Rock and like Mark Wahlberg and people like that, they wake up at like three thirty every morning right. and get in a three hour workout and then do their day. And it's like, what time do they go to bed? Like fucking two in the afternoon. <laughs> like that doesn't make any sense. Um, okay, so we're gonna wrap up. Okay, uh, would you give your thoughts on a sketch idea? Okay, 
Oh, uh, let me let me just get sorry, Alan, for this very long podcast because we mentioned the <laughs> SNL lawsuit that those, oh, yeah, those yeah, people yeah. had. Like, do you know those people? I don't know who they are now. Okay, yeah, like I always felt like it's gonna happen where you see something that SNL does that's like a thing you do, mm-hmm. and I've just never gotten. You've read Gasping for Airtime, right? With uh, I read, yeah, I read it like, when I was like, like in high, like middle school. Maybe. Yeah, I read it like very too young to understand it really, but yeah. Oh man. I got that book as a gift, uh, like a birthday gift from Anthony Jeselnik, <laughs> who is like, he's a great guy, but uh, his sense of, like, he filled the whole thing with notes to me. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, he's like, they're just notes that were like, yeah, this won't be you. <laughs> like things <laughs> like that. It's uh, just like joking around or like. I, I really looked up as a stand-up to, like, Zach Galifianakis, and he'd put on, like, page 24. He'd be like, Zach Galifianakis would be on page 46 by now. <laughs> like, stuff like that. Uh, he bought me that book, and there's that story in there about uh, Jay Moore and uh, stealing the stuff from Rick Shapiro, which is, like, yeah, that would happen in, like, 1994. Right. But, like, especially now in the days that we live in, like, I doubt SNL writers are scouring the fucking planet for random YouTube sketch ideas to steal them. Like, why would they do that? Uh, it makes no sense to me. And like, sometimes like you'll see someone from the groundlings be like, SNL stole my sketch. And it's like, okay, that makes sense if they have talent scouts there. But also it's like the talent scouts aren't writing the fucking sketches and the writers there aren't being assigned like, Oh, we saw this sketch about soccer. Please write this exact premise. Parallel thought happens, and I just I never understood the the point of. I remember seeing this with a kid, like some guy suing Eddie Murphy or like Paramount or whoever over like the idea for some movie. It's like, yeah, you re- that's why you register things with the guild when you write a screenplay, so that sort of thing doesn't happen, and you have a case to stand on. But with like SNL, it's like, why would you sue them? Because it's. A, just going to guarantee they know who you are and then not want to ever deal with you. And it just doesn't make you, I don't know. I, I Like, don't people understand, especially comedians, don't they understand parallel thought? Right. Where it's like, yeah, fucking a pumpkin is funny. And, and five people can, <laughs> five different sketch groups can come to that conclusion. And the sketches, like, I think I, uh, yeah, I watched... I watched the one, the one that the, the the New York guys made, and it was like completely different from the SNL one. Yeah, I mean, I haven't even I shouldn't even be qualified to speak on this because I haven't seen any of them. <laughs> like, <laughs> like we put out a pumpkin fucking sketch, and then a couple of weeks later, like Cracked put one out on video because our, ours was it, it, a UCB live show that we upload immediately to the internet. Uh, and then Cracked put one out, and we're like, okay, well, I mean, it is Halloween. We're trying to think of Halloween right, sketches because yeah. it's fucking October. And then, I don't know. But, yeah, like, to, to aspiring writers out there, it's like, don't be, don't be, especially with comedy sketches, don't be so possessive of, of your ideas. And I only mean that in a way that... Um, like I was saying earlier, how I never just sit back and be like, that's the funniest thing I ever wrote. Yeah, yeah. If, if I do something and SNL does something similar, which has happened to me before in the past, uh, I actually, I, I wrote a game show sketch called Who's the Host, where it was uh, for the Midnight Show, where it was like a, 
it was a game show full of game show hosts, and they were trying to figure out who was hosting it. So it's like you didn't know who the host was, and they were like competing to host. Uh, and it went really well. Um, and uh, a couple weeks later, Ryan Perez, who was one of the early writers of The Midnight Show, was at the Who's the Host show. And Ryan's a great guy and super funny. And he sent me an email, and he's just like, hey, dude, like, I swear to God, I didn't steal this from you. I didn't have anything to do with this, but we have a sketch going in a dress rehearsal called Who's the Host, <laughs> where it's a game show host where they're trying to figure out who's hosting it. It was like a John Hamm episode or something like that. And I'm like, oh, okay. And like, I've just, like, I believe Ryan because it's like, it's not like he just went in and was like, oh, I saw this funny sketch. Hey, will you two head writers write this? Yeah. Or like whatever. And then email you and say, I, I, this is crazy. Yeah. Like, please, like, don't be mad at me or, or whatever. And, and like, it's like, no, I mean, that shit happens. Like, we were probably, both of us, we were probably all inspired by some random thing we saw growing up that, like, laid a seed in our mind that, like, we across coasts thought it would be funny that like different game show hosts on trying to host the same game show would be like a funny idea even called the same thing uh so like that that shit happens and i'm just like i always kind of roll my eyes when there's like that sort of like oh blah 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 stole from me it's like that feels more like a stand-up thing where you're in the clubs and like this stuff's not being archived because it's like okay who really knew who came up with this bit about nerf footballs but right with so much of the, like why would they go online and steal your shit like that yeah. just doesn't make sense to me it's also you know sketch is like you know, four or five pages yeah it's like very disposable yeah content. yeah it's disposable that's what i was getting to before i started rambling about like uh when it's happened to me it's like it's like if it happens it's like okay I'll write another thing. Right. Like, that that's part of the fun of sketch comedy is, like, you can write so many of them uh, mm -hmm. that, like, who cares if, if someone has a similar idea? And also, it's like, hey, that's a good thing. It's like... Yeah, you're on the right track. Yeah, you're, you're on the right track. And for me, with, like, who's the host, that got cut at dress. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, oh, well, if I'd have been there and wrote that sketch, it would have got cut at dress, too. So, like, <laughs> uh, it wouldn't have been on the show anyway. So, like, in the long run, like, who cares? And uh, at least there's a couple writers there who think the same things are funny that I do. And, like, that's, that's I think, the attitude you should have of it. Like, yeah. I do understand the, the sort of, like, oh, fuck. Because I was, I was more like that when I was younger. But... Just gotta, hey, writers out there, if you're not done coming up with good shit, so don't don't treat yourself like like you are. Yeah, that's good. Um, all right, so this is the sketch idea. Okay. Um, oh, so you know the Players Tribune? You definitely know the Players Tribune. Oh yeah. Uh, for people who don't know, it's like um, the athletes' uh, media site run by athletes. So I, I'd like this would be a parody. Of like the movies like The Post, but set at the Players Tribune, so it's like a very serious like newsroom. Okay, and it's like uh, like I think the recent one I saw was like Nick Foles left for Philly, and then the article was like I I love Philly or something, <laughs> and so it'd be like the editor would be like, does anyone know what Nick Foles thinks of Philly? And it's like very serious, and then one guy's like, I actually heard that he he loves Philly. Okay, and then you know the guy's like, well, we need to find three sources on the record, or we can't <laughs> run it, and something like that. Okay, yeah, that's that. I like it. Uh, and I think the, the editorial staff, uh, adds like a workaround, uh, to you actually having to get the athletes in the thing. 
Right, uh, right. Because my first thought when you were pitching it would be like, uh, it kind of would have to be more of a, and I don't even know if they do this sort of thing. Any, I guess they do a little bit. It'd have to be more of a funny, di- funnier die situation where like they bring in like, oh yeah, Chris yeah. Bosch or like whatever random athlete <laughs> happens to be in LA and available. I only brought up. I know he doesn't. He's retired, but when my friend Hal from the Midnight Show like did a web series with Chris Bosch for <laughs> Funnier Die called like Tall Justice, which is uh, pretty funny. As long as I'm plugging other people's <laughs> shit and shitting on my own. <laughs> if you've learned anything today, it's like I suck. <laughs> um, but you know what doesn't suck? That sketch idea. It's perfect. Yeah, no. Uh, Alan's, Alan's a bright... Uh... <laughs> okay. No, no. Alan's, uh, just for you listeners, like uh, he's a very bright young writer and he's got a bright future ahead of him. I know that uh, when we were... When we were in class, like we enjoyed them, and oh, uh, all right, we, we don't need to do no. This. Like everyone, everyone around the pack theater was like, "This Alan Johnson dude's really funny," and like, uh, and he's like, "Oh, I'm moving to New York." And it's like, okay, well, that's that's a bummer for us, but he's probably doing the the smart thing by going to a good grad school <laughs> and getting some different experience. But he's more than welcome to come back and try uh, <laughs> uh, to get put on whatever, <laughs> uh, or also. Concentrate on on movies and TV as well. Uh, yeah. All right. <laughs> thanks for thanks for coming out. Anything you want to plug? No. Pack pack classes. I mean, no. It's <laughs> like if you if you want to take them, take yeah. them. Uh, it was a great sketch class. Yeah. A lot of I was in it. I had a lot of great people in it. Met a lot of great friends. Yeah. And you and uh, Michael Goldenberg did like a uh, did an episode about it. Oh yeah, we did. Yeah. Yeah. So like you can. Check that. Don't plug in your podcast. <laughs> you can check that out if you want their experience of, of taking classes with me and Sam. And we also got uh, Gina Ippolito, who's a, a great sketch writer, but also writes for uh, CBS's Murphy Brown and Powerpuff Girls and, and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, you can check those out at packtheater.com. I'm like the only one of two Eric Moneypennies in America. The other one lives in like Kentucky or something. So if you Google Eric Moneypenny anything, you might find his phone number, but on White Pages website. But uh, you can pretty much find everything I've ever done on YouTube and and shit like that. Uh, and check out my MDB or if you want to. I, I don't know if it's accurate because I always uh, always think it's lame when people update their own IMDb because I'm right. like. Brad Pitt doesn't update his own IMDb. <laughs> it's like, do you need to put like everything on there? It is funny when you look at the bio; it just says "provided by anonymous." Like, it's yeah. definitely that. Yeah, I always like the uh, God. This is going so long. I always like how on IMDb it's like for someone who's not famous, it's like trivia. Oh, it's right, like yeah, yeah. height five, <laughs> five foot four or whatever, and it's like you put you entered in your own trivia. <laughs> Uh, All right, well, thanks for coming out. All right, thanks, man. Thanks for having me. This has been a Boardwalk Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit boardwalkaudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.